Well, good morning again, Calvary. You're doing well? We're about there to the celebration of Christmas coming this uh, later this week. And I hope the season of Advent that we've been celebrating here has been special for you. So I mentioned earlier, this is our fourth Sunday of Advent, and we've enjoyed going through this Advent season together as a church. I hope it's been a good time for you to prepare yourselves for the celebration on Christmas. And if Advent's new to you, maybe you'll uh, find that this is helpful and you can bring it into your celebration every year. A part of our participation in Advent this year at Calvary has been this series we've called The Songs of Christmas. The songs of Christmas that come from the Gospel of Luke. Luke gives us these four canticles of Christmas. And we've looked at one of those each week. We began with the Song of Mary, known as the Magnificat. And then last week we talked about, or two weeks ago, about the Song of Zechariah, who was the father of John the Baptist. Last Sunday we briefly looked at the Song of Simeon, known as the Nunc Dimittis. Simeon said, Lord, now you can dismiss me now, because I have seen the Messiah, the Nunc Dimittis. And today we wrap up these four songs of Christmas with the angels' song. It was sung by the angels to the shepherds tending their sheep outside in the fields above the city of Bethlehem back in the first century on the night Jesus was born. It's recorded for us in Luke chapter 2, and we'll be looking there a little bit later. You heard that those verses read a few moments ago. Uh, the, the song of the shepherds is often referred to as the Gloria, taken from the first word of the Latin uh, phrase, a text there. And it's probably inspired more Christmas music than any other text in, in the New Testament because of its powerful message of announcing the birth of the Savior and of glory to God. So as we look at it this morning, the Song of the Angels, to, to put ourselves in the setting, you, you need to take yourself outside of the city of Sao Paulo. It's too bright here in the night and we can't see the stars, so you've got to go to the countryside, someplace where the sky is dark, black. And so you look up and you see nothing but bright, shining stars. We saw that when we were in the Pantanal recently, that kind of dark sky, no city lights. The Gospel writer Luke says, that's the backdrop, the setting for the announcement of the, to the, of the angels and their song. And he said this in Luke chapter two, uh, 2, verse 5, he said, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. A dark night, perhaps with brilliant stars shining throughout, and the place nearby is the place of Jerusalem, the little town of Jerusalem. It wasn't a big city as it is today. If you've been to the Holy Land, you know that those hills outside of Bethlehem are rolling hills, beautiful sight, but filled with shepherds and their sheep. And so there, the angels came with an announcement and a song that would change all of human history. Now, you might sit here and think, well, yeah, I've heard about that, those angels, and I know angels and the church go together, but you're not maybe a real church person, and you say, well, I don't even believe in angels, so what's this story have to do with me? Well, I want you to know that's okay. You can relax because... Uh, you don't have to believe in angels to be a Christian. There's nothing in the Bible that says you have to believe in angels to be a follower of Jesus. 
You're not going to be thrown out of church. You're not going to be asked not to come back if you don't believe in angels. That's okay. Now, personally, I believe in angels. I, I think as you learn more about the Bible, you will too. But you don't have to start there. The Bible, though, mentions angels many times. There are over 300 plus references to angels in the Bible. And that's good enough for me. Even though I've never seen an angel that I know of, never talked to an angel that I was aware of, I believe in angels. The Bible teaches that angels are real spiritual beings. It says that the angels are messengers for God. They do his, his bidding. They're his servants. Servants of the Almighty God. Some of them watch over God's people. Others are messengers uh, of God. They're messengers of his word, messengers of his will. But all of the angels, whatever their uh, job is uh, during the daytime, I, you might say, whatever their job is specifically, they're all singers. They all join together in a heavenly chorus, singing and giving praise to God in heaven. And it was one of those angels, probably the angel Gabriel, because he appears multiple times in the Christmas story, who illumined the dark sky on the hills outside of Bethlehem on the night Jesus was born to bring God's message to a group of shepherds. Now that brings us to the shepherds. I know, I know my talk today is going to be about the angels and their message, but we can't be completely ignoring the shepherds because they play a key role in this. It's, it's not just incidental that Luke mentions that the angels brought their message to the shepherds because this was the first public proclamation of the Savior's birth, that Jesus was now born. And of all possible recipients, it's interesting that Luke says that came first publicly to the shepherds. That may appear to you no big deal until you understand who the shepherds were in that culture. You see, earlier in, in Israel's history, go back hundreds of years, shepherds were, had been an honorable occupation. Some of the great characters in the Old Testament, in the Bible, were shepherds or, or flock herders. man like Abel, the son of one of the sons of Adam and Eve. Abraham, the father of the Hebrew nation. Isaac, Jacob, Rachel, Moses, King David, Job, Amos. They were all shepherds. And even Jesus would proclaim himself to be the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. But by the time Jesus is born here in the first century, shepherds weren't known to be such an honorable group of people. Now they're often seen as dishonest, dirty, deceptive, untruthful, they're, they're not the kind of, of guy that you'd be praying for to have as a son-in-law, to put it blank, uh, mildly. You didn't want a shepherd in the family at this time. And along with that reputation, uh, they were also considered religiously unclean. 
They couldn't participate in the temple worship because they were ceremonially defiled. And so it's more than a little shocking to the acceptable Jews and the religious leaders that the angel would bring the message of Jesus' birth first to a bunch of shepherds, kind of the blue-collar third-shift workers of the culture. That would be something like God having some uh, more history-changing news that happened uh, maybe this week, and the night before it's to be released, God brings that news, and he delivers it here in the city of Sao Paulo. And he delivers it to those who, while we sleep, sweep our streets, clean our gutters, the basic workers of the city. And he gives them that glorious news. And when the news finally filters to the rest of the city, the next day, the more respectable citizens, the well-connected politicians, us religious folks, and the wealthier denizens of Sao Paulo, we would wonder, hey, what gives with that? Why didn't we get the news first? Why would it go first to the least of these in our city? Well, I think Max Licato, an author, answers that question best, best, why it went to the shepherds. He said this, he said, the shepherds were men who didn't have a reputation to protect or an axe to grind or a ladder to climb. Men who didn't know enough to tell God that angels don't sing to sheep and that messiahs aren't found wrapped in rags and sleeping in a feeding trough. You see, Coming to the shepherds first was God's way of, of saying the good news, the gospel, is for everyone. It's for the common people as well as the well-connected. It, it knows no distinction. For it's often, isn't it, the, the simple, common people who have so much to teach the rest of us. That's what the Apostle Paul wrote about he put, the, put it like this some years later in 1 Corinthians 1. He said, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Next slide. But God, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And that's exactly what the shepherds teach us. Because shepherds didn't believe that God couldn't do what he just did. They had a simple faith. So see, their God had no limits on him. God could do whatever he wanted to do in announcing the birth of a, of a Savior, of the anointed Messiah. They hadn't put their God in a box like the religious leaders had their God in a box. Their God wasn't reduced to a set of rules or regulations. He wasn't confined to their leak-proof theologies or their divine formulas. The shepherd's God could do whatever he wanted, whatever he pleased, however he wanted to do it. 
as long as it was in keeping with his divine nature and attributes. That's a good reminder to us. We need to be careful not to end up with a God in the box. So we've got God so figured out that God can only act in certain ways, within certain boundaries, within a certain theology, within certain expectations, and God can never go outside of that. Otherwise, we end up, in the words of A.W. Tozer, we end up with a God who can never surprise us, never overwhelm us, never astonish us, and never transcend us. And I know there are some Christians today that want that kind of a God. A God that we can control, we can understand, and we can put together in, in this little box. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is free to act whenever and however he wants in accord with his own divine nature, character. And so it was to the angel, or to the shepherds, that the angels delivered their message. And that has great implications even for us. But the message was that I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. Packed into that one statement is the message of the entire Bible. It's all right there. It, it's so rich with theology, that statement, that we could spend all day unpacking it and still not reach the bottom. Because it tells us about God's purpose for humanity. And that is to restore his relationship with humanity. And to heal that relationship, bring us back into the knowledge of God. It reveals who the real Jesus is. God's anointed one. The second person of the Trinity. It tells us why he came to earth to redeem us, to save us from the damnation of our own sins and disobedience. And then it tells us how the whole story will end. Jesus will be acknowledged as Lord of all. That's the message, the essence of the Christian faith that was delivered to the shepherds. That God Almighty, the creator and sustainer of all, is on a redemptive mission and he's orchestrating all of human history to bring humanity and all of creation back into a relationship with him. And so he sent his son Jesus to be born a man to complete that mission. You see, with that announcement, the angel then is joined by a host of singing angels. And the night sky is filled with them. And they sing of God's redemptive plan. They say, suddenly, Luke said, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, singing, glory to God in the highest heaven. And on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. This song of the angels, though it's the shortest of the four canticles that Luke gives us, contains a powerful message for us for our world today. The first part of that message, and it can just really be divided into two parts, the first part is that this good news from the angel, what it means for God. And the second part is what that good news, that message, means for the rest of us, for all of us. 
And so first, this baby's birth, Luke says, is meant to bring glory to God in the highest heaven. That's what the angels announced. That means that God will be exalted, he'll be honored, he'll be re revered through this history-changing event of the birth of a baby. So how does that happen? How does the obscure birth of a baby in a stable in Bethlehem bring glory to Almighty God? Well, we'll have to leave it to the theologians to plunge into the depths of that question. But I'll tell you one way that Jesus' birth brings glory to God. It happens every time someone says, my life was a mess, but Jesus rescued me and gave me peace. Or I used to live for my own glory, but now I live for God's glory. Or someone says, I once was lost, but Jesus found me and he forgave me and he changed me. Or someone said, I, I never felt or heard that I was loved by anyone. And then I discovered that God loves me. And he gave his son Jesus to bring me back into a relationship with him. You see, in the words of Charles Wesley in that great Christmas carol, Jesus was born that man no more may die. And every time someone receives the good news of the gospel, into their life through faith in Christ, there is glory ascribed to God in the highest heavens. For his eternal plan, his eternal wisdom of how to bring us back into relationship with himself. And that brings us to the second part of the angel song. On peace, uh, I said on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. For many maybe most, the peace that we speak of and celebrate and reflect on and enjoy uh, during this Christmas season, it quickly begins to fade. Once the presents are all opened, the dinner is eaten, the dishes are washed, the guests have left, and by the time we, we, we return to work or to school or to our normal routines in January, Whatever peace we experienced and hoped for and enjoyed in December is long gone until the following year. But for those who embrace the gospel, the good news of the angels' song, their peace lasts for a lifetime. It never needs to go away. For the Bible says in the book of Romans, in the New Testament, Romans 5.1, it says that if we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. Lasting peace. Eternal peace. Ephesians 2.14 says that Jesus himself is our peace. In the book of Philippians 2.7 assures us that the peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. So Jesus, when he was here on earth to his disciples, he told them in John 14, 27, he said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. So do not let your hearts be troubled or be afraid. You see, that peace that comes 
to those on whom God, God's favor rests, when they receive Jesus into their lives, is an eternal peace. It never has to depart because it's an objective peace. We now have peace with God. We can have peace with ourselves, within ourselves, and peace with others. That's the peace that this baby in a manger in Bethlehem, the Prince of Peace, brought to this age. And someday when Jesus returns at the end of the age, the Bible tells us that he will set into motion some events that will bring perfect peace to all of creation, to every relationship and every nation on earth. He will have perfect peace for all eternity when he returns again. So there's only one question that is in my mind that remains uh, after the angels returned to heaven and the shepherds immediately went to see Jesus there in the stable in Bethlehem. Why hasn't everyone embraced this Prince of Peace? Why hasn't everyone turned in repentance and faith and said, I need that peace with God in my own life? Why would anyone choose turmoil and conflict over eternal peace? And maybe some of you here today would ask that question. Why are you still resisting the peace that God offers you? Peace with God. Peace with yourself. Peace for all eternity. Peace of knowing where you're going when this life on earth is finished. The certainty of knowing that I'll spend eternity with God. That's true when you receive this gift of the Prince of Peace in your own life. You receive God's peace through a simple prayer of faith. A prayer of faith that admits you need a Savior. Admits, Jesus, I'm broken. I failed. I've disobeyed God. The sin of my life has kept me away from a relationship with God. I need your, your forgiveness. And then to ask him to be your Savior. So will you forgive me of my sins? Come into my life. And then simply acknowledging him as your Lord. And say, will you take my life, control of my life from this day forward and give me your peace? The Bible says when that is your step of faith, you receive him. He gives you the right to be called a child of God. He gives you peace with God. He gives you peace in your own heart because you're forgiven. God no longer holds those sins, that disobedience against you. He says it's now taken care of. It's paid, been paid for in the person of my son Jesus through his death on the cross. We'd love to have you know that peace. If you don't know it, if you've kept on and holding to the turmoil and the conflict of this world and in your life, you can let that go this morning. You can say, God, I want to know you. I want to receive Jesus as my Savior and to know the Prince of Peace in my own heart and life. If we can help you take that step, we'd love to do so. We'd love to sit down and talk with you this week or pray with you after the service in just a few minutes as our prayer team is out on the patio. We'd love to help you take the next step to knowing the Prince of Peace in your life. Let's bow together as we close in prayer. God, thank you 
Thank you that you brought that life-changing, history-altering news to the shepherds to remind us that it's news for all of us, from the common people to the most glorious people on earth. Lord, you bring it to us, and we're all equal in your sight before the cross. I pray, God, today that we might know your peace, that there are people sitting here today who never known what it means to have peace with God. Father, I pray that you draw them to Jesus, help them to understand who he is, and receive him by simple faith. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.